Section 11. 3. The Three Characteristics. The three characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and egolessness, or no self, become predominant, which is good, as these are the fundamental basis for insight. Here it begins to become quite clear that these intentions and actions, sensations and the knowledge of them, and all of the constituents of this experience are quickly arising and passing, somewhat jarring, and not particularly in our control or us. Further, as these sensations are all observed, including the crude mental impression that follows them, consciousness, the whole of the mind and body process is not a separate self. It is merely a part of the interdependent world. These characteristics become clearer and clearer, as well as faster and faster, as the meditator diligently pays careful attention to exactly what is happening at each moment. For those doing noting practice, somewhere around here your speed and precision may begin to get so fast that you cannot note every sensation you experience. Move to more general noting, monosyllabic noting such as beep for each sensation experienced regardless of what it was, or drop the noting entirely and stay with noticing bare sensations that come and go. At this stage, practice begins to really take off despite the fact that this stage tends to be fairly unpleasant. This unpleasantness tends to be mostly physical, though this stage can also cause numerous dark feelings and a sense of wanting to renounce the world and practice. Occasionally, the early part of this stage can cause people to feel vulnerable, raw and irritable to a small or large degree in the ways that a migraine headache or a bad case of PMS can. I have occasionally been laid out on a couch for hours by this aspect of this stage, holding my head and just wishing that these early stages didn't sometimes involve so much pain and anguish. There may be odd bodily twistings, obsession with posture and painful tensions, or strange other sensations, particularly in the back, neck, jaw, and shoulders. These tensions may persist when not meditating and be quite irritating and even debilitating. The rhomboid and trapezius muscles are the most common offenders. It is common to try to sit with good posture and then find one's body twisting into some odd and painful position. You straighten out and soon enough it does it again. That's a very three-characteristics sort of pattern. People sometimes describe these feelings as some powerful energy that is blocked and seems to want to get out or move through. Feelings of heat and sensations like those of a fever may sometimes accompany this stage. One's neck and back may become very stiff, either on one or both sides. The right and left sides of one's body may feel quite different from each other sometimes. The easiest way to get these unpleasant physical manifestations to go away is to keep investigating the three characteristics, either of them or of whatever primary object you have chosen. These are common early retreat experiences, particularly in the first few days. Fighting them or trying other methods such as back rubs, etc., seems to either help only a little, work only temporarily, or sometimes make them even worse though sometimes hatha yoga and related practices done with a high degree of awareness can be helpful. This is a common time for people to go to health practitioners of various kinds, from orthopedists to dentists to chiropractors and body workers. For example, I had a wisdom tooth removed during one pass through this stage because I thought it was throwing my jaw out of alignment, and perhaps it was, 
but this was clearly exasperated by this stage of practice. Even if these unpleasant physical manifestations do slack off for a bit, they are likely to keep coming back until one's insight is sufficient to progress beyond this part of this stage. Thus, should one find such things interfering with one's life, I recommend continued, precise, and accepting practice. This is the phase of practice when strong effort and very quick investigation really pay off. Certain traditions may look at such physical manifestations as energy imbalances or in some other negative light, and I can see where they're coming from, but I find those perspectives limiting. Rather, I see this stage in its broader context as just one more phase of practice. Others may invent very strange stories to explain these experiences. A friend of mine ran into this jnana on retreat, found it very unpleasant, stopped practicing, and began to spin out all sorts of fantastic stories in her head about how the poor fellow sitting next to her was very angry and how it was making her tense. This didn't help whatsoever, and she got stuck there. I have learned to welcome these odd manifestations as clearly recognizable markers of progress on the path. They are clear objects for practice and reassure me that I am on the right track. Unfortunately, this is a hard lesson to teach others. True, these manifestations can suck, but being able to appreciate what is happening in the face of the difficult stages is important and becomes much more important later on. As the mind gains speed at really seeing each of the sensations of the mind and body come and go, the jerkiness from cause and effect can get quite rapid and pronounced. These physical movements and spasms seem to help break up the physical tension that may sometimes accompany this stage and are a sign of progress. 4. The Arising and Passing Away This is also the beginning of the second Vispasana Jhana. As in the second Samitha Jhana, the applied and sustained effort or attention begin to drop away, and meditation can seem to take on a life of its own. An overall general point about this stage is that it tends to be very impressive. When people say to me, I had this big experience, 99% of the time it is almost certainly related to this stage. The description I give of it may not line up exactly with how it happens or happened for or to you, but pay attention to the general aspects of the pattern. I tend to describe it as it happens on retreat and with strong practice going on, but it may happen off retreat, in daily life, without warning, in people who don't think of themselves as meditators and even in dreams. In the early part of this stage, the meditator's mind speeds up more and more quickly, and reality begins to be perceived as particles or fine vibrations of mind and matter, each arising and vanishing utterly at tremendous speed. The traditional texts actually call this stage the beginning of insight practices, as from this point on, there is as much more direct and non-conceptual understanding of the three characteristics. This stage is marked by dramatically increased perceptual abilities when compared with the previous stages. For example, one might be able to hone one's awareness to laser-like precision on the tip of one's little finger and seemingly be able to perceive the beginning and ending of every single sensation that made up that finger. Spontaneous physical movements and strange jerky breathing patterns that showed up in cause and effect and became more pronounced in the three characteristics may speed up significantly. This stage explains where many practices such as Tibetan inner fire practices of the yogic breath of fire come from. 
It can also reveal the source material that inspired teachings such as those about chakras and energy channels. Many descriptions of Kundalini awakening are talking about this stage. Reality is perceived directly with great clarity and great bliss, rapture, equanimity, mindfulness, concentration, and other positive qualities arise. Practice is extremely profound and sustainable, and there may be no pain even after hours of sitting. Unfortunately, the positive qualities that have arisen can easily become what are called the ten corruptions of insight, if the true nature of the individual sensations by which they are known are not understood as well, and until this happens, a meditator can easily get stuck in the immature part of this stage. The ten corruptions of insight are illumination, knowledge, rapturous happiness, tranquility, bliss, resolute confidence, exertion, assurance, equanimity, and attachment. To quote the great meditation master, Sayadaw Pandita, from his great but very hard-to-find book on the path to freedom, as for the practicing yoga, he will at once recognize the above as imperfections of insight, not representing Dhamma breakthrough, but are only to be noted off. Remembering the teacher's advice as to what is path and what is not path, being disabled by the ten imperfections, you would not be capable of observing the triple characteristics in their true nature. But once freed from imperfections, he is able to do so. In short, they may feel that they are now a very mighty meditator, and that they should try to hold on to this forever, such as they stop actually doing insight practices and instead solidify these qualities as concentration practice objects. Thus the advice given about deconstructing and investigating the positive factors of the Samitha Jhanas, particularly the second one, is also very helpful when trying to stay on the narrow path of the progress of insight. Visions, unusual sensory abilities, such as seeing nearby things through one's closed eyelids, out-of-body experiences, and especially bright lights tend to arise to the meditator, sometimes first as a jewel-toned sparkles, and then as a bright white light. I have seen the light. The technical meditator may easily sit for hours, dissecting their reality into extremely fine and fast sensations and vibrations, perhaps even up to 40 per second or even more, with an extremely high level of precision and consistency, where the absurd and disheartening rumors of billions of mind moments per second come from is beyond me. Fine vibrations may spread over the body, revealing the interference patterns between experiences, enabling one to know directly that when one thing is experienced, in that instant, something else is not. It is very easy to confuse this stage with descriptions of stage 11, equanimity, especially as the stage before it, reobservation, has some distinct similarities to stage 3, the three characteristics. A brief discussion of the fractal nature of things that describes this will follow in the chapter called the Vipassana Jhanas. The big difference is that this stage is ruled by quick cycles, rapidly changing frequencies of vibrations, odd physical movements, strange breathing patterns, heady raptures, a decreased need for sleep, strong bliss, and a general sense of riding on a spiritual roller coaster with no brakes. The higher stages, 10 and 11, do not have those qualities. As to the cycles, they tend to proceed as follows, with this description assuming that you are using the breath as object. 
the mind kicks in, follows faster and faster vibrations, things really engage and speed up, perhaps accompanied by more pronounced shaking or strange breathing patterns, increasing in speed, and then finally, halfway down, an out-breath, there is a shift. Things drop down slowly. It takes work to stay with things as they slow down, and then things bottom out. The breath may stop entirely for a while. Then things come back up with the breath, attention tends to flag, things relax, and then the cycle begins again with things speeding up, etc. These breathing cycles may happen quite on their own, and may even be difficult to stop when we are deeply into this stage. Those using visualizations as object may notice that the objects begin to spin with the phase of the breath, or move in ways that they seem to have a life of their own, albeit a two-dimensional one, as compared to the three-dimensional visions that may arise later. As this stage deepens and matures, meditators let go of even the high levels of clarity and the other strong factors of meditation, perceive even these to arise and pass as just vibrations, not satisfy and not be self. They may plunge down into the very depths of the mind, as though plunging deep underwater, to where they can perceive individual frames of reality arise and pass with breaking clarity, as though in slow motion. It can even feel as if we have been submerged in thick syrup and partially sedated with some strong opiate-like drug. At the bottom of these depths, however, they present themselves. Individual moments may sometimes have a frozen quality to them, as if sensations were stopping completely in the middle of their manifestation for just an instant. And this way of experiencing reality is unique to this stage. Somewhere in there is the entrance to the third Vipassana Jhana in Upandita's model, though there is some controversy about exactly which insights line up with which Vipassana Jhanas from here on out. I prefer to think of the arising and passing away being purely second Vipassana Jhana. I will discuss these controversies in the following chapter. The meditator may be able to meditate with profound clarity even when asleep, and the need for sleep may be greatly reduced. Wild kundalini phenomena are very common at this point, including powerful physical shaking and releases, explosions of consciousness like a fireworks display or a tornado, visions, and especially vortexes of powerful fine electrical vibration blasting down one's spinal column and or between one's ears. These vortexes can be very loud, these sorts of experiences can occur quite unexpectedly and even off the cushion, such as in lucid dreams. They may be followed by various mixtures of wonder, excitement, bliss, extraordinary joy, and sometimes disorientation. It is not uncommon for those in the height of the rapture of this stage to associate some of these occurrences with those of an extended orgasm. None of these things are a problem unless their true nature is not understood, or unless they happen when one is doing something like driving a car down an interstate at 75 miles per hour. Yeah, story for another time. Strong sensual or sexual feelings and dreams are common at this stage, and these may have a non-discriminating quality that those attached to their notion of themselves as being something other than partially bisexual may find disturbing. Further, if you have unresolved issues around sexuality, which we basically all have, you may encounter aspects of them during this stage. 
This stage, its afterglow, and the almost withdrawal-like crash that can follow, seem to increase the temptation to indulge in all manner of hedonistic delights, particularly substances and sex. As the bliss wears off, we may find ourselves feeling very hungry or lustful, craving chocolate, wanting to go out and party, or something like that. If we have addictions that we have been fighting, some extra vigilance near the end of this stage might be helpful. This stage also tends to give people more of an extroverted, zealous, or visionary quality, and they may have all sorts of energy to pour into somewhat idealistic or grand projects and schemes. At the far extreme of what can happen, this stage can imdue one with the powerful charisma of the radical religious leader. Finally, at nearly the peak of the possible resolution of the mind, the meditator crosses something called the arising and passing event, A and P event for short, or deep insight into the arising and passing away. This event marks a profound shift in the meditator's practice, and from then on they will be somewhat changed by what they have seen, with this being the point of no return that I mentioned in the foreword and warning. The intensity of this event can vary, though it tends to be quite clear and memorable, particularly the first time one crosses it during that cycle. However, for some, there will simply be something that seems to have the general characteristics of the A&P territory that then fades without an obvious peak event. It should also be noted that some people will have a big and obvious build-up to such experiences, and for others, they will suddenly just show up completely without warning, sometimes spontaneously, and even without formal meditation training, as happened to me around age 15. I have a number of friends who ran into these things without formal training and in daily life, others who ran into them when doing hallucinogens, including mescaline and LSD, others during yoga practice, others while around powerful spiritual figures, including one who had it happen while hanging out with a Christian faith healer, and a few who were hanging out with various gurus. Whatever context the first A&P event happens in, that context will tend to hold a special place in that person's heart from then on. For me, it happened on my own, by my own meditation efforts and without a tradition, and so I have always associated my own practice with progress. My friend who had it happen with the Christian faith healer became the most hardcore Christian you could find, and many people who have had born-again experiences have just crossed the A&P. Another friend had it happen while on mescaline and has since held a special place in her heart for shamanism. Those who had it happen with gurus tend to follow those gurus for some period of time, associating it with the guru's presence. Some others who had it happen in apparently random context usually had no idea what it was or what it had done to them. But most have realized that something was different and most, though not all, remember it with an uncanny clarity as somehow standing out from ordinary experiences. Once one has attained this event, it is fairly likely that one will be able to attain the first stage of awakening sooner or later if one can navigate the dark night skillfully, meaning simply keep practicing. Thus, a good first goal in insight meditation is to cross the A&P event at one's earliest possible convenience with caveats given later in the section on the dark night. The A&P event can happen in three basic ways, corresponding to the three characteristics, just as can the entrance to insight stage 15, fruition, 
and the two are easily confused for this and other reasons. There is great variation in the specifics of what we are seeing and feeling when we cross this profound and intense event, but certain aspects of these events will be common to all practitioners. This event tends to manifest in a way that can mirror the three doors, described below, at about the middle of the outbreath, leading to an unknown event followed by a few exceedingly clearer and more distinct moments imparting some deep understanding of the three characteristics before a second knowing event at the end of the breath. It is not uncommon for the A and P event to occur during a particularly lucid dream or at least in the middle of the night. Now, it should be noted here that it is unlikely that these extreme moments for the sense of the breath to be particularly clear, but this is how things happen regardless. In these moments, most, but not all, of the meditator's sensate universe strobes in and out of reality, arises and passes. The subtle background and sense of an observer still seems to stay stable. In contrast to this, the entrance to stage 15 fruition is through one of the three doors, involves the complete sensate universe, which is background, time, space and all, happens at the end of the outbreath and does not involve too closely related unknowing events. The usefulness of this information may become apparent later on. Those who have crossed the A and P event have stood on the ragged edge of reality and the mind for just an instant, and they may know that awakening is possible. They typically have great faith, may want to tell everyone to practice, and are generally evangelical, or excited about spirituality, religion, and or philosophy for a while. They will have an increased ability to understand Dharma teachings due to their direct and non-conceptual experience of the three characteristics. Philosophy that deals with the fundamental paradoxes of duality will be less problematic for them in some way, and they may find this fascinating for a time. Those with strong philosophical bent will find that they can now philosophize rings around those who have not attained to this stage of insight. They may also incorrectly think that they are enlightened, as what they have seen was completely spectacular and profound. In fact, this is common, and they may stop practicing when they have actually only really begun. This is a common time for people to write inspired Dharma books, poetry, spiritual songs, and that sort of thing. This is also the stage when people are more likely to join monasteries or to go on great spiritual quests. It is also worth noting that this stage can look an awful lot like a manic episode. The rapture and intensity of this stage can be basically off the scale, the absolute peak on the path of insight, but it doesn't last. Soon the meditator will learn what is meant by the phrase, better not to begin, once begun, better to finish as they are now too far into this to ever really go back. Until they complete this progress of insight, they are on the ride, and may begin to feel that the Dharma is now doing them rather than the other way around, as they will progress inevitably and relatively quickly, usually within days, into stages 5 to 10, which, as you will shortly see, are not always pretty. The rapture and all the bells and whistles die down quickly, and the meditator may even be left raw as if hung over after a wild night of partying. The clarity fades somewhat, and the endings of objects become predominant as they progress to the knowledge of 5. Dissolution Entrance to the Dark Night Thus begins what are called the knowledges of suffering, 
or the dark night of the soul, to use St. John of the Cross's terminology. I consider this the entrance to the third Vipassana Jhana, though Upandita considers this the entrance to the fourth Vipassana Jhana. I'll give my arguments for this later, in the chapter that deals more directly with the Vipassana Jhanas. The dark night spans stages five through ten in this map, namely, dissolution, fear, misery, disgust, desire for deliverance, and reobservation. Stages five through nine tend to come as a package, with one leading fairly quickly and naturally to the others. Stage ten, reobservation, tends to stand out as its own distinct and often formidable entity. It should be noted that some pass through the dark night quickly and some slowly. Some barely notice it, and for some it is a huge deal, regardless of the speed at which one moves through these stages. Some may get run over by it on one retreat, fall back, and then pass through it with no great difficulties some time later. Others may struggle for years to learn its lessons. I am going to describe the dark night largely in extreme terms, but realize that this is just to give a heads up to what is possible, not what is necessary or guaranteed. As before, on retreat these things are likely to be more intense and clearer, though those on retreat who are able to keep practicing are likely to make much faster progress as well. On the other hand, practice in daily life can become powerful and sometimes very speedy. These things are strangely unpredictable. Enough disclaimers. Once someone has crossed the arising and passing event, one will enter the dark night regardless of whether one wants to or not. It doesn't matter if you practice from this point on. Once you cross the A and P, you are in the dark night to some degree until you figure out how to get through it. And if you do get through it without getting to the first stage of enlightenment, you will have to go through it again and again until you do. I mean this in the most absolute terms. The dark night typically begins with just about all of the profound clarity, mindfulness, concentration, focus, equanimity, and bliss of the previous stage dropping away. So also ends the cause-and-effect-like phenomena of the breath, or walking, shaking, or jerking up and down in a way related to attention and noting, as well as all of the fine vibrations and vortex-like raptures. Early on, the frequency of vibrations disconnect from the cycle of the breath, remaining largely stable at whatever frequency is going on at that stage once they can be perceived again, in late dissolution or fear. Whereas one might have felt that one's attention had finally attained the one-pointed focus that is so highly valued in most ideals of meditation during the arising and passing away, during the dark night, one will have to deal with the fact that one's attention is actually quite wide and its contents unstable. Further, the center of one's attention becomes the very least clear area of experience, and the periphery becomes predominant. This is normal and even expected by those who know this territory. However, most meditators are not expecting this at all, and so get blindsided and wage a futile battle to make their attention do something that, in this part of the path, it simply won't do. If one has ever been meditating in a place with lots of mosquitoes buzzing in one's ears in a way that made it very hard to concentrate on the primary object, one can get a sense of what one's attention will be like in the dark night. Rather than fighting against this and ignoring the metaphorical mosquitoes, one should try to understand what it feels like to have one's attention be however it is. 
just like listening to discordant chromatic jazz with lots of jarring harmonies and instruments playing more at odds with each other than together takes some getting used to the quality of attention in the dark night is an acquired taste and the sensations that arise tend to be very rich complex broad and unsettling those that fixate on staying one pointed will suffer more than those who learn to stay with what is going on regardless of whether or not it feels like good meditation in that same vein those who are using some other object as a focus will notice the same phenomena of the width of attention being wider and the basic sense of that attention seems to sort of be out of phase with phenomena those doing visualizations may notice that they see a black spot in the center of their attention with some sort of patterns or visions around the edge of it spreading wider and wider into the periphery those using a mantra may feel that the mantra is out of phase with attention wide and complex and yet hard to stay with and may acquire more complex harmonics and harmonies if it is in any way musical like listening to a large ghost chorus that is off to the sides of you whereas before the mantra may have felt centered in the stereo field of attention there will be individual variation in some aspects of these things depending on the object focus ability and each person's particular proclivities but some basic aspects will be universal and i will talk more about these aspects in the later chapter on the vipassana jhanas there are two basic patterns of vibrations in the dark night and they are actually the dark night's defining characteristics one may get overwhelmed by the descriptions of emotional difficulties but keep these patterns in mind and try to stay on that level one is fairly slow somewhat regular and clunky at perhaps five to seven hertz with not much else going on it's an early dark night thing and it tends to feel like a shamanic drum the later pattern is fairly fast perhaps ten to eighteen or more hertz a bit more irregular and has faster and slower harmonics in the background and around the periphery of our attention it tends to make us feel very buzzy and edgy the fact that the background is beginning to shake is a good sign of progress as this needs to happen for the cycle to be completed on the other hand it is exactly the fact that the background has begun to shake and crumble that can cause people to freak out things were all fun and games when the primary object was shaking but when the sense of the observer starts to shake that can be creepy simply pay careful attention to exactly what is happening staying with each pulse of each vibration as clearly as you can trying to see each from its beginning to its end chances are you'll be just fine there are two basic things that happen during the dark night one emotional the other perceptual our dark stuff tends to come bubbling up to the surface with a volume and intensity that we may never have known before remembering what is good in our life can be difficult in the face of this and our reactivity in the face of our dark stuff can cause us staggering amounts of needless suffering on top of this we also begin to experience directly the fundamental suffering of duality a suffering that has always been with us but which we have never known with this level of intensity or ever clearly understood we face a profound and fundamental crisis of identity as our insight into the three characteristics begins to demolish part of the basic illusion of there being a separate or permanent us this suffering is a kind of suffering that has nothing to do with what happens in our life and everything to do with a basic misunderstanding of all of it dealing with either of these two issues 
such as our dark stuff and our fundamental crisis of identity, would be a difficult undertaking, but trying to deal with them both at the same time is at least twice as difficult, and can sometimes be overwhelming. It goes without saying that we tend not to be at our best when we are overwhelmed in this way. The knee-jerk response often is to try to make our minds and our world change so as to try to stop the suffering we experience. However, when we are deeply into the dark night, we could be living in paradise and not be able to appreciate this at all, and so this solution is guaranteed to fail. Thus, my strong advice is to work on finishing up this cycle of insight and then work on your stuff from a place of insight and balance, rather than trying to do it in the reactive and disorienting stages of the dark night. I cannot make this point strongly enough. As a close friend of mine with a ton of experience in insight practices and a gift for precise language and teaching so aptly put it, the dark night can really fuck up your life. However, I will give you two hard-won pieces of advice that I have found have made the difference in the face of these stages. First, make the time to do basic insight practices. Do your very best to get sufficient insight into the three characteristics so as to get past this stage. Make time for retreats or alone time and don't get stuck in the dark night. You and everyone around you will be happy that you did so. The second piece of advice is to have a no-bleed-through policy when you suspect you are in the dark night. Simply refuse to let your negativity bleed out onto everyone and everything around you. Failure to do so can be disastrous, as your profound lack of perspective, fixation on negativity, and the suffering from your fundamental crisis of identity can easily get projected out onto things and people that simply did not cause that suffering. No one appreciates this at all and it does no good whatsoever. Combining these two pieces of important advice resolve thus. I have recently crossed the A&P event, and I know this by the many obvious signs of that stage. Now I am feeling strangely reactive and negative about things that ordinarily I am able to handle with more balance and clarity, and I know that a good part of this is due to the inevitable dark night that follows the A&P, I realize that I am in a less-than-ideal position to skillfully deal with the personal issues that are driving me crazy, as I am likely to project the suffering from the illusion of duality and the odd side effects of the dark night onto these issues. I have been warned that this is an extremely bad idea from those who have successfully navigated in this territory, and I have faith that they know what they are talking about. Even if these issues are real and valid, I am likely to blow them way out of proportion and not be able to bring balance and kindness to them. By contracting into my own reactive darkness and confusion, I could easily hurt others and myself. Thus I resolve to keep my darkness to myself, tell only those who are skilled in navigating in dark territory, or at least share it with others in a way that does not project it out on my world and them, and so will spare those around me needless suffering which they do not deserve. In short, I will use the meditation map theory to keep the reins of my dark stuff and to deal with it in ways that are known to help rather than harm. I will make time for insight practices and retreats, during which time I will simply see the true nature of the sensations of whatever arises, however horrible or compelling and not indulge in the content of my stuff for one skinny instant, if this is within the limits of my strength and power. 
In this way, I will be able to navigate this territory skillfully and not damage my daily life. Should I fail, I will actively seek help from those who are skilled in helping people keep a healthy perspective in the face of dark issues until such time as I can face the dark night as recommended. When I have attained the first stage of awakening, that will be a great time to see how much of my negativity was really valid and how much was just due to my own lack of clarity on the side effects of the dark night. From that place of clarity, I will be much more likely to fix those things in my life that really need fixing and attention, and be able to dismiss easily those paper tigers that I have created for myself. By not trying to take on all of this at once, that is, by gaining deep insights before tackling the personal issues, I am more likely to lead the happy and wise life I wish for myself. I will attain to both liberating insights and insights into my issues, and this will be of great benefit to myself and all beings. One of the primary reasons that I wrote this book was to write this important resolution. I have suffered needlessly and sometimes profoundly from the failure of myself and those I love to follow this resolution. They have suffered also. Were you watching me say these things to you rather than simply hearing them, you would see tears in my eyes and hear my voice cracking with sorrow as I recall those past events and even reflect on what is happening around me as I write this. I beg you, for the sake of all that is good in this world, do not fail to heed this advice. Unfortunately, not everyone seems to be able to do this. In fact, not everyone is even willing to attempt to follow this advice particularly those who buy into the dangerous paradigm that whatever I feel right is now real, in the sense that their feelings at the moment must be the only possible valid perspective on their current situation and are thus completely justified along with their reactions to those feelings. There are those who simply don't believe that such a wondrous and holy thing as insight practices could produce such profound difficulties. There are also those who do not believe in the maps or that the maps could possibly apply to their own very special and unique life. Lastly, there are a few whose pride and insecurity issues will not allow them to admit that they might be affected by the dark night in this way. I would warn such people to stay out of the dark night until they come to a place where they might be able to approximate at least some aspects of the above-mentioned resolution or apply the basics of the theory behind it. That means that if you're not willing to at least try to make and live by some version of my recommended resolution, you should not do insight practices and should not cross the A&P event. I am a big fan of fast sports cars, but I wouldn't give one to a six-year-old kid. Just so, I'm a big fan of insight practices, obviously. But I have come to the conclusion that those who are not willing to use them responsibly and intelligently should not use them, as it's too dangerous. They cause too much trouble in the world to be of little of any benefit. This is not likely to be a popular view, but I have experienced too much of what can go wrong when people fail to try to live up to such a resolution to come to any other conclusion. The problem is that many people cross into the dark night without doing formal insight practices. Surprisingly, it is fairly common. I did when I was about 15 and had no idea what was going on. I have no idea how to reach these people, but they tend to come wandering into spiritual communities soon enough. I hope they find people there who help them sort out what has happened to them and can give them the above advice. 
in my naive dreams i imagine that one day there will be training on the maps and basic spiritual development in some generic non-sectarian way in elementary school just as we learned about biology and mathematics and so this would become just another ordinary accepted standard part of human education and so everyone would know about these things as if they were the ordinary natural things they are until then hopefully the few who run into this technology will help spread it around and help people who have crossed the a and p event to recognize it and handle it properly this resolution and the spirit implied by it are an aspect of training in morality and this sort of morality is one of our best friends in the dark night when we adopt the spirit of this resolution we do our conscious best to craft our way of being so as to be kind and compassionate many people have commented that insight training is a monistic practice if we are able to build our own virtual monastery through skillful speech and skillful action then we do not need a monastery to protect us and the world from the potential side effects of our practices we can live skillfully in the ordinary world and still make progress in insight however there are those who are willing to buy the theory and spirit inherent in the above resolution but are so swamped by their personal issues that they simply cannot follow the above advice after they get into the dark night despite their kind and skillful intention to do so my advice to them is to diligently and quickly seek professional help in the form of psychotherapists and their ilk until such time as they are able to follow something like the above mentioned resolution realize that this is not an optimal way to go as the inherent lack of perspective of the dark night makes aspects of the therapeutic process more difficult but for some there will be no other option and this solution is better than simply floundering on the other hand at least such people have tons of stuff bubbling loudly up for them to deal with making some aspects of the therapeutic process easier however i would try to do just enough healing so that you can push into the first stage of awakening with minimal bleed through and then finish whatever therapeutic process you begin in the dark night after you are out of it there's another seemingly positive way of looking at the dark night or the knowledges of suffering one that doesn't really fit well with our mainstream ideals of how life should be it is the view of the renunciate which basically says ah now i see your pain of your materialistic life of your cravings that will never bring you happiness of your worldly attachments and that house of cards you call a life far better to give it all up and take up the way of the dharma while i have generally advised doing completely otherwise i can completely understand why one would do this however the problem comes when we have things like debt children aging parents and the like and sorting out the ethics of these conflicts is complex regardless the dark night does teach important lessons and learning them is essential to moving to what comes next these lessons do not require specific lifestyle choices for mastery instead it is a question of clear perception of you guessed it the three characteristics of the sensations that occur during those stages as i mentioned in part one each training has a specific kind of renunciation associated with it and they couldn't be more different it is time to get back to describing dissolution as the stage of arising and passing away ends the meditator may be left feeling raw and incompetent despite the fact that they are continuing to make valuable progress into deeper and deeper levels of profound insight 
This feeling that something is wrong when things are actually getting better and better can cause all sorts of problems during the dark night, especially to those not familiar with the standard maps. On the other hand, having come through the A&P territory can be quite a relief, and so sometimes dissolution can seem quite welcome. Some will stop practicing here, as they feel they have released the kundalini and so are done for the time being. Dissolution feels like a very natural place to stop practicing, the only problem being that the later stages, fear and the rest, tend to follow it soon enough even if one stops, though less intense practice leads to less intense if often prolonged dark night. However, those who wish to keep doing formal practice may find dissolution frustrating, whereas just one stage ago they could sit for hours and perceive the finest vibrations of reality in exquisite detail. Now reality appears to be slipping away, vague, and hard to get a handle on. Whereas we may have had stellar posture in the previous stage, now we go back to being ordinary mortals. Images of the body may even seem to completely disappear, similar to that which happens in formless realms, but without the clarity. Practice is likely to be more difficult, and we may experience pain from sitting that was completely absent during the previous stage. This can be extremely frustrating for those who do not know that this is normal, and the desire to retain a fading past can greatly interfere with being present. In the face of these difficulties, I highly recommend noting practice. It may seem like a step back to some who abandoned it during the glory of the A&P, but the spiritual path is not a linear one. In the face of dissolution and the stages that follow, noting practice can be very useful and powerful. In short, if the meditator is able to keep practicing, familiar theme yet, and adjust to having to actually work to perceive things clearly again, they will begin to make further progress. This time, the effort will have to be with a lighter and wider touch. Note well, if they give up in the stages of the dark night, or any time after the A&P event, the qualities of the dark night will almost certainly continue to haunt them in their daily life, sapping their strength and motivation, and perhaps even causing feelings of unease, perhaps depression, even paranoia. Thus, the wise meditator is very, very highly encouraged to try to maintain their practice, despite the potential difficulties so as to avoid getting stuck in these stages. Think of dissolution as the couch potato stage, though it can also have a sense of sensual languor to it. A hallmark of dissolution is that it is suddenly hard to avoid getting lost in thought and fantasy when meditating. We may feel somehow disconnected from our life. Another effect that can be very noticeable at this stage is that actions just don't happen easily. For instance, you might be going to lift your hand to turn off your alarm clock, but your hand just doesn't move. You could move your hand, but somehow things just tend to stop with the intention and get nowhere. Eventually, you move your hand, but it might have been just a bit tiring to do so. That's what dissolution feels like. Meditation can be the same way, and until one breaks out of this, things can get a bit mired down in the overstuffed cushions of dissolution. However, when the perception of things ending becomes clearer again, there arises fear. Fear.